0: Let's open the Scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. The preaching will focus this afternoon on the incarnation of the Son of God, and in Matthew 8 we see some of the, some of the distance that the Son of God went to in order to take upon Himself our weaknesses. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he, that's the Lord Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment." And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases." I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 506, 506, where we find the church's confession in the Belgic Confession, Article 18, where the church summarizes the teaching of Scripture concerning the incarnation of the Son of God. We confess, therefore. "...that God has fulfilled the promise He made to the fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets when, at the time appointed by Him, He sent into the world His own only begotten and eternal Son, who took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. He truly assumed a, a real human nature with all its infirmities, without sin." For he was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by the act of a man. He not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should assume both to save both. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of His mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. He is a descendant of David, born of David according to His human nature, of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, descended from Judah... Descended from the Jews according to the flesh of the seed of Abraham, since the Son was concerned with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. In this way, he is in truth our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, Article 18, you may have noticed, begins with the word, therefore. We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise. And whenever you have that word, therefore, in an opening sentence, you have to look back to the paragraph or the whatever came before because it implies that something is being summed up in an argument, and a conclusion is about to be made. So, because of something said in Article 17, we therefore have the truth presented in Article 18. So, these two articles are very closely knitted together. And the fact presented in Article 17 is quite simply God's promise his covenant promise as we dealt with it last time we've been seeing along the way in articles 1415 that man broke god's covenant placed himself under god's curse but that god didn't leave him there you'll remember that article 16 talks about god's plan of salvation then article 17 laid out god's promise of salvation sealed in the renewed covenant with man. And now Article 18 summarizes the execution of that promise, and everything is hanging on that promise. Because God once made this grace-filled commitment even thousands of years earlier to our first parents, Adam and Eve, we now confess in Article 18, therefore God acted to fulfill His promise. That's the character of our God. He always keeps His promises. And so it follows that at the right time He acted to restore what we broke, the covenant, and He did so by sending His very own Son. And then I preach this word of the Lord to you this afternoon. God sends His own Son to restore the broken covenant. We'll see that He is the bridge of the covenant and He bears the burden of the covenant. Well, Article 18, as the title suggests, it deals with the coming of the Son of God into human flesh, what we call the incarnation. You can hear it's just a big word but you can hear in the root word uh, other English words like carnivore which means flesh eater we know a flower a flower called carnation it's called a carnation because of its color it's a pink flower pink like human flesh so whether it's carnivore or carnation you can come to see that the word incarnation Is simply the act of God who is of course not human but God miraculously enters into the flesh of humanity in other words we're talking here about something we know very well Christmas the Son of God became human by being conceived by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb and then born of the Virgin Mary Now, we are so familiar with this teaching of the Bible that it's almost like having Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast. We experience it so often, so regularly. We we like our Cheerios, but after a while, we don't think so much about them anymore. They're not that special. We would miss our Cheerios if the box was empty, but we don't pause to reflect on just how good those Honey Nut Cheerios are taste they're just always there when we go for breakfast they become old hat well thinking about the birth of our savior can become like that old hat we know he came to earth we know he was born a child we know he was laid in a manger we know it's important we know we should thank god for it but then in our minds we're we're quick to say okay next Let's move on, something, tell us something we don't know. Well, brothers and sisters, this afternoon I want you and I to taste again our Cheerios for the first time. Let us try to savor the doctrine, the teaching of the incarnation in a fresh way by looking at it in a way we maybe don't look at it that often, looking at it through the lens of the covenant. Last time with Article 17, we dealt quite a bit with Adam breaking the covenant back in the Garden of Eden. We humans in Adam, we broke that communion. We instantly made ourselves enemies of God. We placed ourselves under God's wrath, and in that moment, a great chasm opened up between God and ourselves we were separated from our covenant partner. We broke the covenant and there was a gap between us. That's what a chasm is. It's just a huge gap like between two cliffs in the mountains. And this chasm between the sinless God on the one hand and the sinful mankind on the other, this gap, this chasm is too wide for anyone to cross. And on top of that, the chasm itself has no bottom. So there's no way to climb down and then climb up the other side. There's just no connection between God's side and our side. Our sin put us on the opposite side of the chasm as enemies of God without any hope of getting across to the Lord. We are, after our fall into sin, we become covenant partners ripped apart, divorced by our doing. That was our situation after the fall and the sin, but then God came, as we saw, and He promised salvation. He promised to somehow cross that chasm. And now look at what we confess in Article 18. Let's look with new eyes at how God makes this come true. Therefore, we confess, God sent into the world His own only begotten and eternal Son, who took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men, he truly assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities without sin. Think about how astounding that is, that God would do that. God, who was on the other side across the chasm, and sees in man across the way no longer that creature that he created as a son and daughter, but sees in mankind a fallen enemy, a rebel, someone who actually hates him, God nevertheless decides to reach across the chasm and not just reconnect with mankind, but to actually become a human. God's desire to restore the covenant and have communion with mankind is so great that He was willing to literally become one with man to do it. Just think of how... Try to think of this on human, in human terms, if we, if we can. Imagine a husband and wife relationship imagine that the wife for example cheats on the husband and I know that uh, in human scenarios there's often fault on both sides but it can also be that one party is far and away more at fault than the other so just imagine for a moment in this situation a husband who is true to his wife who's been faithful who's been loving, who's been kind, a husband who's provided for his wife's needs, a a husband who cares for her, a husband who is compassionate toward her in word and deed. He's loyal to her through and through. He only desires to be with his wife. And nevertheless, for all of that, the the wife decides to take up with another man she has an affair. She commits adultery. She, in fact, runs off with this other man. She turns her back on her husband, wants nothing to do with her husband. How horrible that would be, right? It, it, it brings tears to your eyes to think about that kind of injustice and, and kind of betrayal. The relationship at that moment is Shattered. The wife has violated her marriage covenant. She acts only in hatred toward her husband. What is the husband, that faithful husband, what is he to do in that circumstance? What would you do if you were that husband? Well, what if that husband went after his wife and pursued her? Called her back. What if, though his heart was hurting, he were to show her kindness in the face of her offense and show her love in the face of her hatred? What if that husband were to hold out his arms and, and welcome her back while chasing away that fornicating lover? That would already be quite something, right? To have for the husband to have a disposition like that toward his cheating wife something unexpected and even to be admired. And now imagine something further, and this is not humanly possible, but we're trying to understand God, what God is doing with us. Imagine if the husband, in order to get his wife back and restore his marriage, actually managed to take upon himself in some way his wife's nature. I mean, that's not humanly possible, What if that loyal husband actually permanently joined himself to his wife in some spiritual fashion in order to stay connected with her, in order to stay with her forever and ever? That would be going far and away beyond any sense of duty, any sense of expectation, and yet that is exactly the kind of thing that God does with respect to us humans He does that in sending His Son to become a human. You see, the incarnation, the coming into human flesh of the Son of God, it it just blows away our concept of how much God actually loves us, His covenant wife, because that's what we, the church, is to God. We are His wife, right? We are the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, the wife of God. Because just when you think that God's love is loyally, God's loyalty is fierce and His love is great, just when you think you understand that, then all of a sudden you see that God takes it to the next level, a level beyond all levels. In order to save His rebellious, cheating, adulterous, hate-filled, covenant-breaking wife, God actually unites Himself permanently with her God becomes a human. That's what happened at Christmas. That's the the wonder of the incarnation. That's the unique, unheard-of act of love in the conception and birth of Jesus the Christ. We talked about a chasm. But you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the bridge over the chasm. He's the unique bridge over across that chasm for not only does he by means of his suffering and death and resurrection not only does he bring us into the presence of god but in his very person he is both man and god he's both members of the covenant he's both sides of the covenant in himself so in jesus both parties are united once for all forever That's the incredible thing. Everyone then who belongs to Christ, everyone who believes in Christ, means that you are united to God forever. In the man Jesus, both covenant partners live together in a bonded unity that is unbreakable. You can't pull apart the human and divine natures of Jesus. They are one in the person of Christ, and for that reason all who belong to Christ are forever one with God. It's a mystery, the incarnation. How does God become man? Let's see if we can try to clear up some of the misconceptions. Jesus is both fully God and He's fully man true God, true man. Article 19, will spell that out in more detail, but it's here already in Article 18, which refers to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says of Christ in verse 6, "...who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." So, the picture is this, the Son of God, who is and forever will remain God equal to the Father, the Son of God, He added to Himself something He never had before. He added to Himself the nature of a servant, a human servant. So, this is a a unique moment in history never before Had this been done, one of the members of the Trinity became something he was previously not. To be sure, he never lost what he's always been. He's always been God. He always will be God. But he's added something to himself, humanity. This is the covenant husband joining himself permanently and intimately to his covenant wife, God becoming man, in order to forever cement their marriage union, so that it would never be broken again. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? Back in the beginning, if you go back to paradise, prior to our rebellion, God and man certainly had fellowship, a very, very sweet fellowship together, right? They would walk together. God would come in the cool of the day, and they would walk together in the garden. They would speak together. But they remained separate entities. God was God. Man was man. And yet, after man rebels and breaks covenant, what does the holy God do? Well, not only does He not destroy man, which He had every right to do and man deserved, And not only does he, beyond expectation, reach out and promise to this adulterous covenant partner that he would restore that relationship, but God goes further and God goes deeper into unity with man that he had ever done before by actually becoming a man. We've seen it before. That God, in His grace, went seeking the rebellious Adam. But here, in the the second Adam, God, in His grace, explodes the, the, the compassion and the kindness and the mercy by actually becoming a man. That's the part we have to taste again for the first time. That's the Cheerios you need to taste again. God bonds Himself eternally with His cheating wife. Be amazed, brothers and sisters, at the, at the love, the, the incredible boundless love your God has for you and me. Taste those Cheerios again for the first time. Across the chasm now lies a bridge, a bridge which will never be taken away. The bridge is the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the face of that bridge, we see both covenant partners, God and ourselves, the divine and the human forever joined together as a sure testimony that our God will forever be with us. Emmanuel has come. O come, O come, Emmanuel is deeper than we knew. God is not only beside us, God not only walks with us, God not only lives in our hearts, but God has become one of us in the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt the love of God for you. If you ever think, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God loves a sinner like me. Look at the manger. See the baby there and understand the bridge. That He is the bridge over the unbridgeable chasm. Jesus, and only Jesus, takes us across to the Father. Father in the bridge of His body, a real, true human body that carried all our infirmities. For that's another aspect to what the Son of God did in taking on human nature. He took on our flesh not as the perfect flesh that Adam received in the Garden of Eden, but flesh, human flesh, after the time of rebellion. Article 18 says it this way, he truly assumed, and that just means he took upon himself, he assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities. Well, what's an infirmity? The word just means weakness, something that is not strong, something that is not firm, literally. And it refers to the fact that ever since the fall of sin, the human body, the human nature, has this built-in weakness. It's part of its corrupted state. That means the human body is subject to breakdown. The human nature is subject to decay and injury. In years gone by, hospitals were referred to as infirmaries. And if you go to… prison, you can still hear them talk about inmates being sent to the infirmary. That's the place where you care for the weak or those who've been weakened by some injury. So, Jesus, in being born of the Virgin Mary, He took on the same kind of human flesh that you and I have, one that is weak, one that ages, one that can have diseases, one that feels pain. Our nature has many physical weaknesses, and on top of that, it also has many mental infirmities, and our emotional makeup is not perfect either. Since we broke covenant in Eden, everything about our human nature is weak. It's infirm. It's fragile. It can can fall apart in an awful hurry. Haven't we seen that in our own experience? I mean, just, just think about the weaknesses in our congregation or in our lives People we know, Alzheimer's can hit, and it can subdue very quickly. A stroke can paralyze. Cancer or a blood disorder can lay us low. Injury can strike. Depression, anxiety can set in unstoppably. These are all part of the infirmities of the flesh. And it's this kind of human nature with these kinds of weaknesses that the Son of God took upon Himself. He didn't take upon Himself the flawless, strong, unweak flesh of Adam before the fall, no, but the the infirm, damaged nature of Adam after sin. And just to be clear, it's not that the Son of God sinned, He did not take on sinful human nature, but a weakened human nature. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit came over Mary and in in a mysterious way caused her to conceive a child who is identified as the eternal Son of God. And yet at the same time, Jesus was her natural son too. Joseph was not involved, but the child received flesh from his mother Mary, human nature from his mother Mary. The work of the Spirit ensured, on the one hand, that Adam's original sin would not be passed on to this unique child. As Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that's a big difference. Jesus had no sin in his heart, Jesus never committed a single sin, but he was tempted. And he lived in a weakened body. He had a body, a mind, and a set of emotions that was constantly subjected to infirmity, weakness. And what that all comes down to, brothers and sisters, is this. By taking on human flesh, the Son of God was taking upon Himself the burden of the covenant. What does that mean? Well, he was taking upon himself the punishment, the due punishment for our sin because the weakness of human flesh and all those things that can go wrong in our humanity, that's because of us. That's because of our sin. Those are all preludes to the final act of infirmity, death itself. It's we who caused all the troubles and infirmities that arise from sin. We caused it by our rebellion in Adam. And now God comes, the Son of God comes, and He inhabits our flesh, our weakened flesh, in order to carry those burdens. Jesus was no Superman. He had no kryptonite at work in His flesh He was a simple, in that sense, a simple person like you, like me. As a baby, he would have cried. If he scraped his knee as a boy, he would have hurt. If he was hit, he would bruise. If he was bullied, he would have felt the sting of that, rejected and alone. If he was insulted, he would have been offended, just like we feel all those things. And the New Testament tells us a number of his infirmities. Think of Jesus as a baby being nearly killed by Herod's soldiers in Bethlehem. Remember later in his ministry how he was tired to the point of exhaustion after long days of preaching. So much so that he could fall asleep in the stern of the boat while there was this great storm raging overhead. And he's lying there sleeping. He was exhausted. Think of his hunger after 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Think of his thirst when he met the Samaritan woman at the well. Think of his disappointment regarding his disciples when after months and months of instruction, they still didn't understand his teaching. And he has to say to them, Are you still so dull? I've been instructing you these three years. Are you still? You still don't get it? Think of the disappointment he would have had. These are all fully human emotions Experiences that belong to the weakness of the flesh, he didn't sin in any of them, but he endured and he bore and he carried the infirmities of our flesh, all as part of the punishment being laid on him. Not only did he carry human infirmities in his own personal body in that way, but he also came, as part of his work, he came to carry away our infirmities from us. That's why we read Matthew 8 where the apostle writes at the end of that section, verse 16, that evening they brought to Him, to Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You could translate, He took up our infirmities, He carried our diseases. How did Jesus do that? Well, we read in Matthew 8 some of the things that He did. He reached out His hand and said to the leper, who asked him to make him clean. He touched the leper, right? Sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I am willing, said the Lord. Be clean. And he touched him. Jesus was willing to go into the unclean home of a Gentile and heal his ailing servant. Later he went into Peter's home where his mother-in-law, a woman lying in bed with a fever, was would have been unclean in her sickbed. He goes to her and touches her and heals her. And with a word, He heals the most unclean of all, those possessed by evil spirits. This is the incarnated Son of God, the holiest of holy beings coming among His people, touching His infirm people and taking their infirmities away taking them upon himself they would be cleansed from all those weaknesses while he had to be treated like dirt now don't get me wrong it's not that jesus took on himself leprosy and the other unclean things or the other weaknesses in in a literal way that he somehow developed leprosy Or became sick or wrestled with an inner inner demon no not at all in that sense he didn't take on their infirmities but he took upon himself the cost of those infirmities that was the great burden that was the curse of the covenant no mere man could carry that cost it was too heavy but jesus carried that cost all the way all his life long. The healing of every weak condition in us humans, the setting free of sins, punishment, and consequences that could only come at great expense, and Jesus was en route to pay the price. Jesus could bring healing to the leper because he was on his way to bring the payment for the leper. Jesus could cast out demons because he was on his way to cast down his life on Calvary. Jesus could heal and restore the leper because he would let himself soon be treated as an outcast and a reject at Jerusalem. Jesus could touch an unclean woman in her sickness because soon he would be looked upon as an unclean person, a social pariah, worse than even a demon-possessed man, fit only to be cast out of the city and crucified. Every time Jesus relieved a person of his or her suffering, of their infirmities due to sin, He did so knowing that He was their substitute who was in the midst of suffering God's wrath for their sin, and He would do so unto death on a cross until every infirmity, every sin of His people was paid in full. He carried our infirmities all the way to Golgotha, He was bearing the burden of the covenant curse so that you and I might receive back the covenant blessing. That's what Christmas is about. That baby born in Bethlehem is not just a warm-hearted story of endearing affection. It's a jaw-dropping account of self-sacrifice in which god proves his unfathomable love for us by restoring what we broke that covenant restoring the covenant in his son who bridged the gap and bore our burden take it all in taste it again brothers and sisters for the first time it's it's a love god's heart filled with love like maybe we've never seen it how can then our hearts not be filled with a love for god in return isn't that the only response amen